0: Uh, Thank you for allowing me to be here tonight. It is an absolute honor to be able to come and preach the Word to you. A couple things off the top. First of all, our church loves this church. We love your pastor. He has come and served us in the past. We are so grateful for the ministry that is occurring here, and we do pray for you. And we know that you guys have prayed for us. In the past, before the merge that was mentioned, you had prayed for our church to locate a building And Raymond had shared that prayer with us in the past, and by God's grace, he has answered that. And to the abundance that we couldn't even imagine, he has answered that prayer request. So thank you uh, for praying for us over in Long Island, and we thank you uh, for serving the Lord faithfully here. And we are so grateful to see the way God continues to grow and serve you in this place. Uh, Another thing to know right off the top is that, uh, much like your pastor, I'm a transplant. I'm not originally from Long Island, I grew up in Kansas. Uh, however, God built me to fit outside of Kansas. In fact, where I come from, they use the word fast talker as an insult. Uh, where I live now, fast talking is like the way of life. So when I come here to preach, I am going to talk much more rapidly, most likely, than you are used to, just because I speed through what I have in front of me. However, uh, the information here, I believe, is something that will be beneficial to each one of you. Uh, one of the challenges that existed in the early church is the fact that there was such a high rate of illiteracy. Depending on the region, scholars estimate that most cities in the first century, century hovered between 12% on the high end of literacy and an abysmal 2% literacy on the low end. And when the medium that God uses to reveal Himself to His people happens to be the written word, Literacy is incredibly important, and there are some struggles with literacy today. I don't want to pretend that there are not. I was actually just speaking with a brother this past Tuesday who admitted to me that he cannot read and he needs assistance to understand the Word of God because he himself cannot understand the text. And there are those in that uh, place even today. And if you're in that situation, I want to encourage you, don't give up. There are many people and many ways to receive help. But to be honest... For most Americans, and I'm assuming here in a college town in this area, most Americans, we do not have the problem that we can't read the text. More likely, it's the problem that we don't read the text. And what's more, even when we do read the text, we often don't read it for comprehension. And this is often due to simply reading our Bibles too quickly. There are hundreds of important concepts and details that we just glide past as we assume that because our eyes have touched that word We somehow got it. Tonight, I want to share with you for a few minutes about a specific phrase that you find all throughout your Bible. It's one of the phrases that I myself flew past without comprehension for many years, and it's the simple phrase, the arm of the Lord. This expression, or some variation of it, shows up about 120 times in the Old Testament. And when it's employed in Scripture, it is used to describe the manifest power of God. Sometimes it's referred to as the outstretched arm of God. Sometimes it's called God's mighty arms. Sometimes they are called the everlasting arms. But in each instance, they have a common theme: that these arms belong to God Himself. They belong to the Lord, and they are being used to manifest His power here on Earth. One of the attributes of God in His divine is His divine omnipotence. He is powerful. There is not now, nor has there ever been, nor will there ever be anything that is difficult for God. There is nothing that challenges his strength. There is nobody that could ever overpower him, even if we had the combined forces of all people throughout all of history. There is no force, real or imagined, that could possibly challenge his power. And God's power is always on display for us in various ways. Consider, for example, Romans chapter 1. Paul writes, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Notice three things very quickly from this. First of all, creation itself displays the power of God. Every single person in the entire world has ample, abundant, incontrovertible evidence that God exists. How? Because His power is on display in creation. Secondly, this evidence is not only displayed, it is received by every person. Paul states that God's eternal power and divine nature have been, quote, clearly perceived. There is no such thing as a true atheist. Although people will suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, the evidence of God's power has not only been observed, but it has been perceived clearly by all people. Now, this term, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, I often compare this to a beach ball. If you've ever gone to the beach or to the swimming pool as a child, you take a beach ball, and you you know what you try to do. You try to lay on it, and you try to submerge it so that it can't be seen any longer. Unfortunately, what happens is, The ball will flip over and you will be submerged and the ball will not be submerged. What we try to do is we try to suppress the reality of God's power and we try in ungodliness to reject it by suppressing it and pushing it down under. The third thing that I want you to see here is that this reality presented to us in Romans chapter 1 means that all people everywhere are without excuse. Let me just share with you what that means. Now, I don't know who many of you are. I don't know the state that you have before God. I am not sure, you know, there's a lot of you here on a Sunday night. Not just a Sunday, but a Sunday night. And perhaps that would indicate that you have an interest or a love of Christ. But perhaps you're here for another reason. And I just don't want to assume your state before the Lord. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That testimony we heard earlier is such a clear example of what Jesus Christ does to save people who are unworthy of heaven. No matter how worthy you think you are compared to other people before God, you have fallen short. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you and like me, that we might be redeemed and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we might have a relationship with God the Father through him. That is the good news of the gospel, and that's going to be woven into everything I say moving forward. But if you don't know anything about this gospel, if you are confused about it, or if you've heard it a thousand times but have not yet believed it, please understand knowing what I'm going to say tonight about the arm of the Lord will be of minimal or limited or maybe even no value unless you bow your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ because salvation is not of the mind, it is a belief that comes from the heart. So place your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved, I call on you today. God's display of power in creation, I will say, is not passive. Jesus continues to uphold the world, even now, by the word of His power, after all. Yet, there are occasions when God uniquely enters into His creation in order to display His magnificent strength. So, although you can see the power of God in a volcano, sometimes we see it much more interestingly and specifically in aspects of his entering into his own creation. One of the clearest examples of this is seen in the exodus of God's people as God systematically dismantled the gods of Egypt and sent plague after plague after plague to reveal that there is only one true God and all of the gods worshipped in Egypt were not the true God. And throughout that process, God freed the Israelites from their bondage, and through Moses, God began speaking of this kind of involvement in creation using that specific phrase that we're focusing in on tonight, that phrase, the arm of the Lord. This is where we begin to see it in the Bible. So let me present you with a brief sampling of occasions where we see this term in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 15, we find the very first song ever recorded in history, Christians are a singing people. It is one of the commands you find most commonly in the Bible. But where does that all begin? It begins in Exodus chapter 15, the first song that we see recorded in Scripture. And in this song, Moses sings of what God was doing by freeing the people from their slavery. He writes this song and sings it directly after the crossing of the Red Sea. And in verse 16, he says, "'Terror and dread fall upon them.'" Because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as stone, till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. What I want you to see right up front is this. There are two clear sides to the arm of God. First, we see that it is a terror to the enemies of God, and it is also a comfort to those who, quote, have been purchased by him. The arm of the Lord functions to punish God's foes, but to protect God's family. The book of the Bible that uses this phrase, the arm of the Lord, most often is actually the book of Deuteronomy. As God is reminding the people of exactly what he did for them, as he led them out of Egypt, he over and over and over says, I led you out with my mighty arm. It's an interesting thing. We find it over and over in that chapter or in that book. However, I want to focus in on just a couple of places. One of them we find when he speaks about the deliverance from bondage in Deuteronomy 5:15. We read, "You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm." One of the other aspects we see of the arm of the Lord is that it begins to develop in the way that the arm always brings God's people freedom. It gives freedom to captives It was by the power of the arm of the Lord that the people were brought out and set free from this tyrannical overlord that abused and belittled and brutalized them as slaves. Deuteronomy also contains one of my favorite examples of our focal expression tonight. In chapter 33, verse 27, it says, The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Notice that not only does the arm of the Lord set you free, it also contains this particular attribute of divinity. The Lord's arm is described as everlasting. And also take note, there is some relationship between the working of these everlasting arms and causing our dwelling place to be with God. That is an incredible aspect of the nature of this arm of God. Now, I know that we're moving fast, but let me shift your attention very to a very familiar place that we find in Psalm 136. Here we see the repetition of this antiphonal psalm, which just means a call and response kind of psalm, where we see this resounding statement through the ages that we memorize to help us consider this incredibly important and profound reality that His steadfast love endures forever. With every single phrase that is mentioned, it reminds us this is one of the ways that we see God's steadfast love Endures forever. Well, one of those ways that we see God's steadfast love enduring forever is found in verse 12 when it says, With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is again calling back to God's deliverance from Egypt. But what I want you to recognize in this psalm is that it provides motivation for the arm of the Lord. It provides the motivation in all of these actions that he has taken throughout Israel's history. Why does God do what he does? For them, why lead them out of Egypt? Why free them from their slavery? Why take them to the promised land? It's certainly not because they deserved it, not because they earned it, not because they obeyed enough to get there. Rather, it is owing to this, simply this soul-stabilizing truth that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. His arm is motivated by this steadfast love this is just a a tiny ice cream scoop-sized sampling of the many occasions when the concept of God's arm is mentioned in Scripture, but in what we have already seen, we have highlighted that the everlasting arm of the Lord comes to do what? It comes to bring salvation and to bring judgment, to establish freedom from bondage, to permit us to dwell with God, and to be motivated and accomplished to do these things because of eternal, steadfast, divine love. So I think you probably see where I'm going with this, but one of the beautiful ways that God begins to use this term is found in the book of Isaiah. There are four songs written in the book of Isaiah that are called the servant songs. They are about the coming Messiah who is going to redeem Israel and indeed the entire world from the curse of sin. For example, in Isaiah chapter 51 verse 9, we see this phrase used, this commissioning call. It says, awake. Awake. Awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Now, if you continue reading through this entire song, what you will find is this is the commissioning call of the servant who was come to suffer, the one who would come to serve and purchase back a people for God himself. If you were to examine these words, they are being produced not by Isaiah, not by national Israel. Who is telling the arm of the Lord to awaken? It is coming from the mouth of God the Father himself. Uh, One time when I was in high school, I don't know if this ever happened to anybody else, but I used to have a lot of circulatory issues as I was growing up. And so sometimes I would lay on my arm. I'm I'm a face down kind of sleeper. So I'd put my arm under me and then I'd wake up and my arm would have no sensation at all. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. But one time when I was sleeping, I woke up middle of the night, pitch dark, living in a basement, and I felt an arm on my chest. And I began touching it, and it was cold, and I had no feeling there. So I I grabbed the arm, which happened to be my arm, and I threw it off the bed, and in doing so, threw myself off the bed and ended up on the floor. Now, it might sound strange that God is speaking to His own arm, and it would be strange for any of us operate in this way. We don't communicate to ourselves like this. But yes, God the Father is commissioning God the Son. God is having an inter-Trinitarian conversation in this chapter of Isaiah. And here in Isaiah, we see that the arm of the Lord is not just a metaphorical way to speak about the manifestation of God's power. It is a way to describe the pre-incarnate Son of God taking action in the world. And in this servant song, the Father is calling the Son to go forth and to save. This is continued in the next chapter, which contains the next servant song, Isaiah 52 verse 10, which says, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now I realize I don't look like it right now, but believe it or not, back in high school I used to play basketball on my high school team. And while we were playing one game, there was this very unusual circumstance that took place. We were playing the Wichita Angels, and I remember this game very well. There was a teammate of mine who began doing things that were just confusing to me. Why are, why are you acting this way? So, for example, we're, we're at the free throw line. Somebody's shooting free throws. We're rebounding. I'm standing across from him waiting to get the rebound, and I see him doing this over and over. And, of course, you know, he's wearing a, a jersey. He's, he's, like, flexing and looking at himself. I was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? stop that. What are you doing? Well, a few minutes later, we had a timeout and we go to the timeout huddle and he's sitting there and he's got his arms over his head. He's, I can't do it in the shirt, but he's literally flexing his muscles and standing and like getting his shoulders to be as strong looking as possible. And what I didn't know at the time is that his potential girlfriend was across on the other side of the court. And even my coach looked at him and said, hey, cut it out, cut it out. We're playing basketball today. What was he doing? He was using the international communication of strength. Look at my arms. That's what guys do. Ladies, I know that's weird, but guys guys do that. And what the Bible shows us is God uses this kind of human metaphorical communication to say, yes, I am bearing my arms. I am going to reveal to you my strength. I am going to display to you my power. I am going to show you that I am strong. God is going to flex. But how is he going to do that? The shocking thing is he does not display his power in any way that we might expect. It doesn't come through plagues or famines or wars or armies. The arm of the Lord would come as a servant. Now, we see this even more clearly in the very next chapter, these very familiar words. This is the most famous chapter in all of Isaiah, except for maybe chapter 6. In Isaiah 53, verses 1 and 2, this is what we read. Who has believed our message... And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now catch this transition. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Notice that the arm of the Lord is now personified. The arm of the Lord is inexorably linked to the suffering servant that was coming to do what? to be stricken and smitten and afflicted, and he was to be bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. John the Apostle understood this connection, and he says in John twelve thirty six through 38, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And he says, why? So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John identifies Jesus as the arm of the Lord that has been revealed to some, but not all have seen. Jesus is the manifest power of God to us. He is the one who came to bring judgment and mercy. He is the one who sets captives free from slavery to sin and to Satan. And he is the one who makes it possible for us to experience our dwelling place with God. And he is motivated by love For both the Father and for those he redeems. So when you see this little phrase, the arm of the Lord, remember that Christ has been actively carrying out the will of the Father long before his physical incarnation at Christmas. He continues to work even to this day. And to those in the room who know Christ, I hope that your heart is warmed as you get a glimpse of this Jesus who is the arm of the Lord, the manifest power of God. We see at the very end of the book, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, that the dwelling place of God will be with man. That's the whole hope that you and I have, that God would dwell with us, that that broken relationship that was destroyed in Eden would be fully restored. But how do we get from all the way back in Genesis 3 to Revelation 21? We get there because Jesus Christ is has done everything necessary by being the power of God displayed to us at the cross for all the world to see that he would redeem a people through the shedding of his own blood. He bared the power of God. He flexed in a way that was shocking. He laid down his life so that he might save sinners like us. So if you are here tonight and you do not Know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. I just simply want to read to you from another passage in Isaiah, chapter 59, verse 1, which says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor His ear too dull to hear. So if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you might think, I am just too far gone. He can't save anyone as wretched as me. The arm of the Lord Jesus Christ is not too short to save you. He can save the worst and to the uttermost. So come to Christ, the arm of the Lord, who is not too short to save. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, I pray that tonight you would give great joy to our hearts as we remember Jesus Christ, our Savior, who gave himself for sinners. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust in you, that we would recognize your power and that we would never think we have to lean in our own strength or our own understanding, but in all of our ways that we would acknowledge you and that you would in in due time make our path straight. God, I pray that in all of these things, you would give us wisdom and give us strength to carry out your commands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.